Amen. I'd like to invite you this morning to open your copy of God's Word to Luke, Luke chapter 10, as we continue to consider the love that God has shown us, what He's done for us through Christ, and how it is that He calls us to humble ourselves, to bring ourselves low before Him, to respond to Him in love and faith and obedience. Luke chapter 10, our text today will be verses 25 through 37. I'm going to read the text and then we'll pray together. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Luke writes, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Lord, we come before you this morning asking that you would enable us by your spirit to humbly receive the truth of your word. Give us a a grasp and an understanding of the truth that would move us to worship you, move us towards faith, move us towards obedience, an understanding of the truth that would cultivate a proper humility about who we are before you and a proper joy when we recognize who you are and all that you have done for us through Christ. We ask for your help now in his name. Amen. So this story is probably a familiar one to you. Even though it's only found in Luke's gospel, it's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in John, it's perhaps one of the most famous stories, one of the most famous parables that Jesus tells in the whole New Testament. It's even given us a phrase that has passed into common usage, right? I mean, even people who aren't Christians, people who've never read the Bible, when they describe someone who's showing a surprising amount of kindness or generosity to a stranger, they'll say, oh, what a good Samaritan that person is, right? We're very familiar with this story. But the danger of that for us is that we become so familiar that we actually miss the details and we miss the point, the actual point of the text. So what is this text, this passage, really about? Some throughout church history have taken quite a few liberties uh, with symbolism in this text. They will say, well, uh, the Good Samaritan is a picture of Christ and the inn is, is symbolic of the church 
and the two denarii are baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they try to find a symbol in, in every detail of the parable. But such interpretations actually miss, completely miss, what it is that Jesus was trying to communicate on that day as part of this conversation. There's other people who will understand this story and reduce it to a purely ethical example. Be nice like the Good Samaritan. And that about sums it up for them. And while there's definitely ethical applications that we can and should draw from this story, we do learn what it looks like to have a radical generosity and a love that crosses racial boundaries. Yes, that is there. But there's more than that in this story. What's really the intended impact? Why did Jesus tell this story? To answer that question, we need to make sure that we pay attention to the dialogue that precedes the story. Notice our text starts in verse 25. It doesn't start with Jesus' story in verse 30. So I want to pay attention to those details because what we know is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's labeled that in my Bible. It has a little bold heading. It might actually be better titled The Lawyer Versus the Teacher because what we have here is actually a larger conversation. It's a battle of questions between Jesus, who's the rabbi, the teacher of the law, and this lawyer who is a scribe, an expert in the Jewish law. It's, and they're going back and forth with these questions regarding eternal life and regarding the true demands of the law. And because these questions really frame the whole story and they frame the argument being made, what I'd like to do is sort of structure the sermon this morning around those questions to help us understand the meaning of this text. And then at the end, we'll try to draw out a few implications uh, that, that we can seek to apply in our own lives. So let's look at those questions and see how this text is structured. The first question is found in verse 25, and it really governs verses 25 through 28. And the first question is a question about eternal life. A question about eternal life. Verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? When you read lawyer here in this text, don't think about a modern attorney, someone who might specialize in civil law or perhaps criminal law. Now, in Jesus's day, a lawyer was a scribe. He was a scholar whose career had been dedicated to the, the study, the interpretation, the application of the Mosaic law. I mean, remember, Israel was designed to be a theocracy, and there was no division between church and state. God's moral law, God's religious law, God's ceremonial law was the law. And so even though the Romans had come in, and they had taken over in terms of civil law, it was still a matter of great importance to the Jewish people to understand what is God's will for us? How does he want us to live? And so this lawyer was an expert in the Old Testament law. He was highly educated. He would have been an influential member of the religious establishment. This group of people, by the way, that were typically very hostile towards Jesus. So this is a debate between a credentialed expert and Jesus, who was a rabbi, a teacher, but someone that this man doubtlessly saw as a popular level amateur, not someone who was a professional like himself. Because as he stands up, which shows presumably he had been sitting, listening to Jesus teach, he brings a challenge. He addresses a public question to the teacher. And the question he asks, it is an important one. He's not just bringing up some obscure issue. His question has to do with eternal life. 
Eternal life is something that all people have questions about. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. We all know deep down inside there's something more to life. There's something after death. And that's the question that many religion, religions, many philosophies seek to answer. But eternal life is something that only God can give. And as an expert in the Old Testament, this man, this lawyer, was very aware of that, that eternal life was something that God provides. Job 19, 26, Job writes or says, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. There's been a hope of eternal life. Ever since the patriarchal days, the, the, the ancient days of Job, David writes in Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's an, an eternal joy, an eternal life, an eternal rest and satisfaction that faithful Israelites had been looking forward to. Daniel chapter 7, verse 18 says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So as Jesus preaches about the kingdom, this man rightly understands that tied to this kingdom is the prospect of eternal life. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Old Testament, the the the. The literature that this man specializes in, it speaks of eternal life that is to come. And it's likely that this man, being a son of Abraham, being a religious Jew, he had always assumed that eternal life was guaranteed to him. I mean, he is among the righteous. He's among the saints. He's part of God's chosen people. But then along into this context comes a man named John the Baptist, who starts to shake things up a bit. He's preaching repentance to the Jews. John is warning of judgment to these people that assumed eternal life was theirs. In Luke chapter 3, we saw this. In verse 7, John says to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist rattled their cage. Don't assume that the kingdom is yours. Don't assume that eternal life is yours. You need to repent. And now Jesus comes on the heels of John, preaching about the kingdom of God, likewise calling for repentance, warning of judgment, I mean, Jesus is preaching, warning people that they need to respond. He's saying some are going to build their house on the sand. Others will build their house on the rock. And when judgment comes, it's going to be seen who stands. Jesus preaches the kingdom and indicates that not all belong to that kingdom. So what is it that this Jesus, this rabbi, really thinks one must do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that this lawyer brings to the table. But this question reveals two things about this man, two important things. First of all, this question reveals his motive. Notice what Luke says. His question is not an honest one. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. It's not a sincere question. 
This isn't a man with a troubled conscience who's humbly seeking answers, who's ready to believe and follow Jesus. He's not like the Philippian jailer that we meet in Acts 16 who comes to Paul and his partner and says, what must I do to be saved? No, he's asking this in order to test Jesus. He's trying to draw him out. He's evaluating Jesus in his teachings, probing his theology for weaknesses and errors. You see, this man is wise in his own eyes. And he doesn't get it. Jesus talked about people like this just in our text right before this. Look up in verse 21. Remember how Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This man was one of those supposedly wise and understanding men who didn't get it. And he thinks he's in a position to test Jesus, to ask Jesus questions, to put Jesus on the spot. This question not only reveals his motive as he seeks to challenge and test Jesus, but it also reveals a very, very big assumption. It reveals not just a proud and skeptical heart, but also the assumption that there is something he can do to inherit eternal life. What shall I do, he asks. He assumed it was within his power to achieve eternal life. He thought there was something he must be able to accomplish that would earn him the reward of eternal life. He thought there's something in his own strength he can do, in his own efforts to inherit eternal life, as if he was capable of unlocking the door to heaven. Later on in chapter 18, we we meet another man who had this same assumption, this rich young ruler who asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So his motive is to test Jesus. His assumption is that it's actually within his power to do something that would inherit eternal life. So how does Jesus answer this question? Well, Jesus knows the man's motives. Jesus knows this man's proud assumptions And so Jesus, in his perfect and sovereign wisdom, he exposes both of those things by answering his question with a question. This is a classic form for Jewish dialogue. Jesus says, okay, Mr. Lawyer, Mr. Namikos, that's the Greek word for a a lawyer, a scribe, an expert in the law. Okay, Mr. Namikos, what is written in the namos, the law? Let's talk about it. Jesus, who came to fulfill the laws, more than happy to talk about the Old Testament scriptures since they speak of him. And so he specifically asks this man, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He invites this man wisely to grapple with the truth of Scripture. This man is unwilling to really listen to Jesus. So he says, well, how about let's both talk about the Bible together. This is a great example, by the way, for us when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to apologetics. Invite people to read the Scripture for themselves. And Ask them for the verdict. That's what Jesus does with this man. And he has no choice but to respond. I mean, Jesus has sort of called him out in front of everybody, right? He can't stand up there and say, I don't know. (laughs) He has to answer because he does actually know the answer. In fact, this is why he's testing Jesus because he already has something in his mind and he was waiting to see if Jesus knew the answer, if Jesus would affirm the scriptures, if Jesus would get it right, or if this uneducated rabbi would get it wrong. He's trying to figure out, is this Jesus in line with what we've always believed the law teaches or is he doing something new and changing the game? 
And so he gives an answer, and his answer is actually a beautiful summary of the law. Look at how he answers in verse 27. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This man quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, from the Shema, this famous passage of scripture, which faithful Jews would have recited twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This call to wholeheartedly love God is the first and greatest commandment. In fact, this scholar, this scribe, may have even had this exact piece of scripture written on a little piece of paper, rolled up into a little miniature scroll, and stored in a little box that he wore on his wrist, or maybe even on his head. Some, some very religious Jews would have even done that to literally obey the figurative command of Deuteronomy 6 and bind these truths on their hands and on their heads, on their foreheads. So this is what the man refers to. It's the first and highest duty of God's people. Love God with everything you have. And it really summarizes the first table of the law. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, the first four can be effectively summarized under the heading of loving God supremely. So the man answers with a brilliant and accurate summary of that first duty, to love God with everything you have. And then he goes on, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes next from Leviticus chapter 19. Those who love God wholeheartedly are to evidence this love by loving others sacrificially. Leviticus 19 calls us to this love for neighbor and spelled out for ancient Israel exactly what that love was to look like for their countrymen and for sojourners and others in their community. And this command to love your neighbor really summarizes the second table of the law. If you look back at the Ten Commandments, number six through 10 can all be summarized as how you should love your neighbor. So this is a brilliant and skillful summary of the demands of the entire Old Testament law. And it's a summary, it's an answer that Jesus agrees with. Jesus agrees. He answers in verse 28, you have answered correctly. Jesus says, you got it right. We're on the same page here. That is the duty of the law. In fact, Jesus answered similarly when he was questioned by another scribe on another occasion. Someone asked him, what is the greatest and first commandment? Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus answers, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus concludes, there is no other commandment greater than these. So though this man is an establishment scholar who's credentialed and highly educated, and Jesus is this untrained rabbi who comes from Nazareth, they're on the same page. This is what the law calls us to. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. And then here comes the kicker. Look down in verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus says. And now here's Jesus' real answer to his question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do this. Love God with everything you have. Love him wholeheartedly. Love him supremely. And love your neighbor with this radical, sacrificial, selfless love. Do this. And you will live. Jesus' words echo the refrain of the old covenant. This covenant that was established with Israel at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, it was a call to obey God's law. Deuteronomy 6.25 says, It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. 
Leviticus 18.5 says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The prophets affirm that this is the call. In Ezekiel 20, verse 11, God says, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which, if a person does them, he shall live. The Apostle Paul summarizes it the same way. Writing about the old covenant in Romans 10, verse 5, Paul says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So Jesus says, there's your answer. If you want to know what you can do to inherit eternal life, it's simple. Just keep the entire law. That's it, right? Simple enough. All you have to do is fulfill your entire duty to God and man. Wholeheartedly love God with all you have and sacrificially love others, and then you'll get in. That's how you can have eternal life. And the way that this is stated is Jesus says, do this and you will live It implies that whatever the man has done in the past is actually not enough. He has more work to do. There is a duty that lies before him. Jesus doesn't say, if you've done this, you will live. He says, you go do this, and you will live. This man has more work to do. Jesus says, that's great that you understand the law. Now how about you go and perform it? So the man has his answer, right? But there's only one problem. This is an impossible task. This is an impossible task. This man has not loved God wholeheartedly, and he has not ever loved his neighbor perfectly as himself. Not for a day has he done this. And no matter how hard he tries, he will never be able to do this. This is indeed what the Mosaic covenant, what the law demands. But no man had ever been able to live up to it. That's the problem that you discover as you read the Old Testament is that this old covenant cannot bring them into life. No man had ever been able to live up to it because they had a dead heart, an uncircumcised heart, and they needed God to do something for them. They needed God to do something in them because left to themselves, the law would only bring condemnation. You see, the harder we try to keep God's law, the harder we try to do all the good things that we are supposed to do, the more we become aware of our inability, the more we become aware of our failure and how far short we fall. Romans 3.20, Paul says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The more we give ourselves to the law, the more we realize how sinful we are, how bad our situation is. Paul continues at verse 23 of Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all blown it. Galatians 3.10 says that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, just keep the law perfectly. Do this and you will live. So why did Jesus answer this way? Well, Jesus, it's very important we understand this. Jesus is not teaching that there are some who will be saved by their good works. He's not indicating that it's somehow possible for us to do enough. He was exposing this man's deadly assumptions. This man thought there was something he could do. So Jesus is pressing him to see that he needs a savior. 
This man needed someone who could keep the law in his place as his representative because he couldn't do it. This man needed not more instruction. This man needed forgiveness. This man needed a righteousness that was not his own. And Jesus is trying to help him look in the mirror, to look in the law, and to see who he actually was, to see his pride, to see his self-righteousness, to see his sin. This man could not merit salvation, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to replace that old covenant with a newer and better covenant, one that would be ratified with his blood. Jesus came to provide for us what we could not achieve on our own so that we, like Paul says in Philippians 3.9, can say that we are found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, there is a way to be righteous, not through our keeping of the law, but through Christ's keeping of the law, through faith in him, We are counted righteous, declared to be righteous. That's the good news of the gospel. But sadly, the man who asked this question about eternal life, who's talking face-to-face with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, he refuses to acknowledge his need. Instead, he doubles down on his self-righteous pride. This takes us to the second question, the second question which, which turns the focus of the conversation. And he asks a question about the interpretation of the law, a question about the interpretation of the law in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's really fascinating. This guy started off playing offense, right? He's questioning Jesus, trying to put him on the spot. Now he's playing defense. (laughs) Now Jesus is the one asking him questions. And you see him backpedaling here saying, well, in that case, we better define who it is that is my neighbor. Does that mean other Jews? Does it mean those that are part of the same theological tribe? There were some in that day, like the Pharisees or or the Essenes, this sect in the wilderness who interpreted neighbor to mean only the people that were part of their club, right? You lower the bar, makes it a little easier to love your neighbor, right? So perhaps there might be some wiggle room here. He wants to prove himself righteous. He wants to justify himself. There's no confession. There's no repentance. There's no faith in Christ. There's no denial of self only a desire to justify himself and somehow limit the scope of his obligations and lower the bar so that he can argue for his worthiness. This same self-righteous pride was evident often in the Pharisees. Jesus condemns it. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That instinct of pride to justify self is something that does not please God. It was sadly a common response among many of the religious people in Jesus' day. Romans 10.3 talks about the rampant unbelief among the Jewish people. And Paul says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And the same instinct is present in people today. It's in us. When we have that desire to justify ourselves, when we have that instinct to to prove our righteousness and to somehow earn or accomplish God's favor, it shows how much we underestimate the demands of God's law. 
It shows how tragically we've underestimated the significance of our sin, how much we underestimate the radical holiness of God. So it's at this point, in answer to this second question, the man says, who is my neighbor? It's at this point that Jesus begins to tell the story, the story that we're all so familiar with, this story of the good Samaritan. He pulls us in by painting a picture and teaching truth in such a way that Like this man, we are left with an inescapable conclusion. Jesus says, you want to know what it means to love your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Let's talk about that. So in response to that, he tells this story. Jesus replied, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This man was traveling, likely by foot, apparently alone, between Jerusalem and Jericho, and the road between those two cities was very remote. There's lots of hills, there's lots of blind corners, and there's lots of caves, which means it was a prime place for robbers and bandits to hide out, to set up an ambush, and to waylay people who were traveling alone. That's one of the reasons Jesus tells his disciples, you got a sword or two with you, you might need them. It's why they often traveled in groups, and it was not safe to go alone. This man goes alone He's ambushed, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's stripped, and he's left for dead. In fact, he's already half dead. He's not just slightly concussed. This man is in a bad medical situation. He's not all the way dead, but he's seen better days. And he's left there in the ditch on the side of the road. Okay, so there's the crisis of this story. Now, now how is this crisis going to be resolved? How is this problem going to be fixed? That's what we're all expecting, right? Introduce character number two. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. A priest is someone who obviously served in the temple at Jerusalem, someone who is responsible for leading the children of Israel in the worship of their God. If anyone would have loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, if anyone would have fulfilled that first commandment, you would think it would be a priest. You would think he would be someone who is devoted to God and would therefore minister to this man and help this man. But we're surprised to see that he did not help him at all. He saw him, he saw the situation, but he passes by on the other side. He keeps a safe distance. It's kind of a shocking failure. Enter character number three. So likewise came a Levite. Now, all priests were Levites. All priests belonged to the tribe of Levi. But all Levites were not necessarily priests. There were many Levites who did serve in specific capacities supporting temple worship, but they did so in different roles. So here's a man who's dedicated to helping. He's a professional helper. He's a professional servant, someone, if anyone, were to be someone that would love neighbor and be ready to be the hands and feet of love, you'd think he would be a Levite. But just like the priest, he walks by. He passed by on the other side. Many people speculate why. Why didn't these two men stop to help? Some have speculated maybe it was a concern with cleanliness. If this guy was dead and they were to touch him, that would defile them, and then they'd have to go through all these purification rituals. They might not be able to fulfill their duties in Jerusalem. It's possible. It's possible they passed by because of fear. Maybe that's a trap. Maybe that guy's just laying there pretending to be half dead so that as soon as I stop and go over there, I'm going to get jumped by all of his friends. Or maybe that man really is half dead, 
But if I stop here, this is obviously a dangerous place and I'm going to end up just like that man. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe they just thought someone else will help. I don't have time. We don't know. We're not told why they passed by on the other side. We're just told that they did. Jesus keeps the details fairly sparse so that we can see the main point. So we're expecting a hero to come. Someone has to help. And at this point, Jesus gets ready to introduce another character. And likely the expectation for the lawyer and for all the people there was that Jesus was going to introduce just a regular Joe, a Jewish layperson, not a priest, not a Levite, but just a regular faithful Israelite. Maybe that's what Jesus is about to say, right? Because Jesus is this anti-establishment guy who wasn't part of all of their schools, who wasn't highly connected at Jerusalem like they were. He's a popular level rabbi, a man of the people. He teaches out in the fields. He hangs out with the common folk. That's probably what Jesus is going to say. Jesus is, is trying to attack the clergy. He's trying to attack the professionals and uphold the common man because Jesus is a populist, right? That's what Jesus is going to do. And it's not at all what Jesus does. He doesn't bring up a Jewish layperson. Jesus said something that would have shocked his hearers. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. This would have been absolutely shocking for both this lawyer and all the people that were listening because the Jews didn't have a category for a good Samaritan. Many of them probably would have said the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. There was all of this this hostility and tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the concept of a good Samaritan would have been a complete oxymoron for Jesus' listeners. To understand these tensions, we have to go back in history a little bit. Centuries before this, under the foolish leadership of Solomon's son, the nation Israel had experienced a civil war. They had gone through a big split. Ten tribes in the north had had abandoned the Jewish dynasty. They had rejected Jerusalem, rejected David's heir, and set up their own capital in Samaria. Judah and, and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, kept Jerusalem as their capital, and they followed David's bloodline. And after many years of rampant idolatry, these northern ten tribes were judged by God. They were, they were overrun by the Assyrian Empire. They were taken into captivity. Most of them were deported. The, the ones who remained ended up intermarrying with all of the Gentiles who moved in to fill the vacuum. And as they intermarried with Gentiles, they picked up their customs, they picked up their religion, they picked up many of their ways. So the Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds, as religiously compromised, and as disloyal to God and his covenant and his people and his temple. So the Jews did not like the Samaritans at all. And the Samaritans returned the favor. They saw the Jews as uppity and proud. They saw perhaps there was maybe a little bit of jealousy because the Jews had a cool temple. And the Samaritans didn't. They had to worship on this mountain and call it good. right? So there's these mutual animosities between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews wouldn't even travel through unless they absolutely had to. They would go all the way around and take the long route. Samaritans didn't like the Jews either. We saw in chapter uh, 9 of Luke that Jesus went to stay in a Samaritan village, and they refused. They wouldn't let him be there. They wouldn't support him. They wouldn't listen to him, wouldn't give him a meal or a place, a, a roof to sleep under, because his face was set to go to Jerusalem. So there's mutual hostilities here. And Jesus said it's a Samaritan who ends up being the hero of the story. 
This man shows remarkable compassion, verse 33. He doesn't see the man and walk by on the other side. He sees this man, and it says he went to him. Despite having no obligation to care for this man, he goes towards this man of his own initiative and demonstrates great personal care. He, he, he treats his wounds with wine, using the, the alcohol to disinfect. And then he, he anoints him with oil that would have soothed those wounds and protected them from future dirt and infection. And this wine and oil would have been valuable commodities, and he's doing this out of his own pocket. His personal investment goes even greater in verse 35. He takes him to an inn. After, after walking him there, he puts the man on his own donkey. He hoofs it on foot, and he gives him two denarii, which was two days' wages for a, a, a day laborer in those days. This is several hundred dollars in today's currency, and it likely would have covered anywhere between three to six weeks of, of room and board and maybe food at the inn. And then he even gives him a blank check at the end. Look at what he does. In verse 35, in the second half of it, it says, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. A blank check to care for this man's needs. This is a stunning example of kindness and compassion and generosity and total love for an absolute stranger. Jesus tells this shocking and surprising story, and then he drives home the point by asking a pointed question. Again, we're in this battle, this debate of questions back and forth. Look in verse 30. Six, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And asking this question, Jesus does something remarkable. I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus is actually tweaking and changing the original question. He's shifting the focus. The man had asked, who is my neighbor? He's concerned with the object of love. Who is it that fits in the category of people that I'm supposed to love? To him, neighbor is a noun. Neighbor is what someone else is that then I guess I'm obligated to love to a certain degree. But Jesus changes it around a little bit. He says, who proved to be a neighbor? Jesus is less concerned with the object of love than he is with the subject, the one who is showing love. Rather than asking, who am I supposed to love? Jesus wants him to be concerned with, who am I supposed to be? In Jesus' view, being a neighbor is a verb. And so he's shifting the focus of the conversation. Now, this lawyer may be proud, he may be skeptical, but he is no dummy, and he knows the obvious answer. He gives the answer. He said, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say Samaritan, but he acknowledges that the one who showed mercy, the Samaritan, the outsider, the half-breed, the one who comes from this corrupted religious background, he's actually the one fleshing out the true meaning of God's law. He's the one who's loving his neighbor. And then Jesus doubles down on his original answer about eternal life. He says, you go and do likewise. He looks at this man with whom he's had this discussion and he's basically asking him, can you go love like this? Can you demonstrate that level of compassion and generosity and sacrifice? And it's at this point that the story ends. He doesn't give any response to what Jesus says. And he doesn't ask any more questions. But I think there should have been another question. This story is really missing 
the question that should be included at the end. And it's not missing because we have a problem with our translation or because there's a problem with the Bible. We're missing the last question because there's something wrong with this man's heart. He should have asked a third question, not what shall I do? At this point, he should have asked, can you do something for me? He should have responded like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. He should have asked for forgiveness. In Luke chapter 18, verse 13, we're told a story of a self-righteous Pharisee praying in the temple. But there's a second man praying in the temple, a tax collector who stands far off, and he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He should have asked for mercy. He should have asked for mercy as he looked into the mirror of God's law and saw just how far short he fell of loving God supremely and loving his neighbor sacrificially. He should have recognized his sinfulness, his weakness, his need, and asked for mercy. He should have asked like that tax collector in the temple. He should have asked like the thief on the cross for rescue. In Luke chapter 23, verse 42, we find this man dying on a cross next to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. He should have asked for mercy. He should have asked for rescue, but he didn't. You see, to inherit eternal life, we have to be sinless. We must perfectly obey. But because we cannot, we must run to Jesus and ask for mercy. We run to Jesus and ask for rescue. We repent of our own attempts at righteousness, and we believe in his promise. This is the only way we can be saved. This is the only way to inherit eternal life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul writes that God has done what the law cannot do. The law is weakened by the flesh, Paul says. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son. You see, the law is not able to save us. It can only condemn us. And so God sent his son Jesus to save, to give us eternal life. The old covenant says, do this and live. But in the new covenant in Christ, we find a promise of life. John 3, 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is how we can inherit eternal life, by believing in Jesus, by looking to him. For us, on this side of the cross, in this era today, under the new covenant, it is no longer do this and live. It is now look and live. Look to Jesus. Look to the Son of Man who's been lifted up. Look to him as your salvation. Look to him as your righteousness. Look to him for forgiveness. Look to him for rescue. Believe in him and receive the salvation that he provides by his working. The answer is not to do some good work. The answer is that we must acknowledge our need, acknowledge our sin, repent, and place our trust in the person and the promise and the power of Jesus. I want to draw out three implications as we close. Three points of application for us this morning. The first, I hope, has been made abundantly clear. This parable of love 
shows that we cannot earn eternal life. As far as we know, this man never asked the right question, did he? But that doesn't have to be your story. Perhaps you're here today and you feel in your heart this need, this question about your own eternity. Do you have eternal life? Are you destined for heaven? Will you be with Christ for eternity? Or is there judgment hanging over your head? If you're here this morning in search of eternal life, listen, friend, you must admit that you cannot do it yourself. You have to realize that you can't keep the law. You must admit the ways in which you've already broken it. You've already fallen short. You're a sinner. You're guilty. And you must repent of your desire to justify yourself. That has to be laid aside. And instead, Christ calls you to trust in his promise, the promise of justification through faith, that he can make you righteous and give you salvation. Very bluntly, stop trying to earn your salvation. It's impossible. Recognize that it's only Jesus' work that saves you. My prayer for you this morning is that you would allow God's law to expose your need and that his law, this law that calls you to love God perfectly and love others sacrificially, that that law would actually point you to Christ. Place your faith in him. This parable of love shows we cannot earn our salvation, so don't try. Don't try. Second uh, implication, this parable of love also shows us that we have not earned eternal life. And that might sound like the same thing, but I'm speaking now to Christians. I'm speaking to those of you who have eternal life. Listen, we have not earned it. If you are one who has found eternal life in Jesus, here's what that means. We had better stop pretending as if our salvation was our own doing. If there is any pride in us, if there's any self-righteousness in us, any attitude of, of, of thinking we deserve something from God, That needs to be put to death. It needs to be put to death. Any attitude of spiritual entitlement is completely out of place for someone who's received God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. Those who have received eternal life in Christ ought to be the most humble of all. I love 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Titus 3, 4 says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Is this sort of grateful humility for what God has given you, is that a feature of your prayers? Is that something that marks your conversations with others? Do you happily rejoice in Christ's righteousness? Do you boast in him and boast in his cross and boast in his resurrection? Or do you still live a life that is bent on justifying yourself? If you have eternal life this morning, this is a call to glory in Christ and glory in his work for you. There's a third and final point of application. This parable of love does show the way of life for those who have found life in Christ. Yes, we cannot keep the law perfectly. We cannot earn salvation. But as those who have received grace, God's law no longer condemns us. It now directs us into the will of our Father so that we understand what it is that pleases him and how he desires us to live. 
as those who have received his love. It ought to produce a radical love in us, a love for God and a love for others. We see this in Luke chapter 7. Remember that woman whose sins were many but had been forgiven much? She wept and, 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 and wet Jesus' feet with her tears and then wiped those feet with her hair. Others were scandalized by that, but Jesus said, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. If you've received eternal life through Christ, if your sins have been forgiven, you know what that should produce in you? A supreme love for God and a genuine sacrificial love for other people. Those who find life in Christ will be transformed by the perfect love of God. We recognize that the love of the Good Samaritan is really a reflection of the way God has loved us, isn't it? Jesus saw us in our need, and you and I were not just half dead. We were dead dead. We were all the way dead. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet he saw us, and he had compassion And he came to us, did he not? He set aside the glory of heaven to take on human flesh. And he rescued us. He ministered to our needs, securing our salvation at great personal cost. Jesus did more than offer some money and some wine and some oil. He poured out his blood to save us. And it's because he has loved us like this that we are to respond in love to him. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we joyfully seek to love any and all who may cross our paths. We are called to obey Christ's command. Go and do likewise. Not because we're trying to earn life, but because that life by grace is already ours. So we joyfully obey the command of Jesus. Go and do likewise. And by the power of his spirit, we now seek to live a life that reflects the love and the compassion of our Savior. You cannot earn eternal life, so don't try. You have not earned eternal life. That should produce humility and gratitude in us. But as those who have received life, this marks the way for the kind of love that pleases God, the kind of love that resonates with his will as it's revealed in his law. May these truths clarify the grace of the gospel in our minds and hearts this morning. And and I pray that this story and, and these truths that we've talked about will produce a proper humility, a proper gratitude in us because we've received his compassion. We've received his love. We have received eternal life. Let's go to the Lord and give him thanks together.